Hi, my name is Malcolm Duncan and I want to thank you for stopping by the Thin Places podcast. Whether you're exploring faith or seeking to deepen your faith, my prayer is that as you listen, it will be a blessing to you. Please make sure that you click or subscribe to the podcast to be kept up to speed with all the latest episodes. I'd love you to take a look at some of my other resources that are available on the internet too. You can go to my Facebook page, which is facebook.com forward slash Rev Malcolm Duncan for daily updates and reflections. You can visit my webpage, malcolmduncan.co.uk, where you can order books and listen to some other resources and link to my written blog. And lastly, you can take a look at my YouTube channel, which has some videos of me speaking in various contexts and some biblical exposition, as well as some videos of me exploring contemporary topics and issues. Thanks very much for stopping by, and I pray that God would richly bless you. This is episode five of the Good Grief series, entitled A Jumbled Journey, The Chaos of Grief and Loss, and How We Navigate the Unpredictability. Grief doesn't come to us in neat, tidy boxes. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's remarkable work identifying five, or perhaps some would argue the six, different stages of grief, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance and growth, is amazing work. But it isn't linear. Grief doesn't happen in simple, straightforward stages. These things come to us and jump out at us at different times and in different ways. They can feel as if they are buried and gone and then raise their heads or perhaps their fists in our lives after being hidden for a long time. I don't think that grief is as straightforward as a linear journey. I think it's more a jumbled journey full of uncertainty and crisscrossing. Our pain and our heartbreak and our sorrow move in all kinds of directions. They move forwards and backwards, up and down, in and out. They stretch into our lives from the past. They stretch into our lives from the future. They are chaotic and unpredictable. They play with our emotions. One time we can feel deeply peaceful and then another time we can feel deeply troubled. And I think in my own life, as I have journeyed through grief, I've realised that I need to understand it in different ways at different stages if I'm to get my way through it, if I'm to navigate my way through this journey. I don't need a canoe to be in the desert and I don't need a pickaxe when I'm in the ocean. What I need is the tools and the understanding that is right for that moment in my journey of grief so that I can navigate through it and survive it. I somehow need to be able to learn how to flex in response to the landscape of loss and to use the right tools, the right equipment, take the right approach at the right moment. And to do that, I want to look at three different metaphors with you in this episode and then introduce the fourth metaphor, which I will introduce and explore in episode six of Good Grief. But the three Metaphors that I want to explore with you in this section, in this episode, are all taken from the Bible and they are the metaphors of a storm, of a desert and of a hurricane. The storm, I think, speaks about unpredictability. The desert speaks about isolation and the hurricane speaks about fear. 
and running away and hearing God in the whisper. But let's begin with the storm picture. Life can suddenly take a tumultuous turn. It can just collapse in around us. And there's no better image of that for me than the image of the storm. In the midst of all of the heartbreak and pain that I have gone through, one passage in particular has been very powerful to me. And it's the story of Paul's shipwreck recorded in Acts chapter 27. It's a story of a journey that seems to be calm and then becomes tumultuous and then becomes life-threatening and takes a long time, but ultimately ends with Paul and all of those on his ship uh, safely on the beach. Grief, I think, is like the sea. It can appear calm and still one moment and then be whipped into a violent and a threatening storm the next. And that picture helps me. And Paul's story in Acts 27 helps me particularly to kind of make my to get my head round that. It tells the story of Paul's journey to Rome to face trial. And he was placed in custody of a centurion called Julius, which is explained in Acts chapter twenty seven, verse one. And they set sail, but they quickly run into trouble as a storm rises around them. You can read that in Acts twenty seven, verse four. Their journey gets slowed down because of all that they're facing. We know that from Acts chapter 27, verse 7. And then they battle the wind and they eventually anchor in a place called the Fair Havens, which we read of in Acts chapter 27, verse 8. And despite Paul telling them that they should stay put, the commander of the expedition is determined that he wants to get the journey underway again and that they can reach a safe harbour further along the road or further along their, their, their sail where they could spend the winter we read about that in Acts chapter 27 verses 9 to 12. So they set sail into what is described in verse 13 as a moderate storm before they get hit ferociously by a famous uh, wind called the North Easter, which is described in Acts 27 14. We're told that their lives are in real danger and they're being pounded by the sea in Acts 27 18 and they fight to stay afloat and they begin throwing stuff off the boat and plan to run her aground in the hope that they will survive. We read about that in verses 13 to 17. And then they feel as if they're facing certain death and all hope is gone in a powerful verse that we'll read in a moment in Acts 27 verse 20. And at that moment Paul has a deep sense of God's purpose for his life and that gives not only him but the rest of the crew an assurance that they're going to make it. They have a meal together similar to the Last Supper in the imagery painted in Acts 27 verses 33 to 38, particularly in verse 33. And then the ship is destroyed and they land on new territory, clinging to bits of the boat in Acts 27, 39. And the story ends with them all surviving. And Luke finishes the whole story with them holding on to pieces of their old vessel in Acts chapter 27 verse 44. Those words and all of those images were deeply, deeply helpful to me. They fit into my journey uh, of grief and sorrow and how I have navigated it. There's a sense in which I couldn't avoid this trip. I had to make it. I had to walk through this heartbreak and this sorrow. I, I have lost everything and then found a new way of being and discovered that I hadn't lost everything. I hadn't lost 
my family. I haven't lost my faith. I haven't lost God's presence and grace. In my grief journey, I have been forced to stay on the ship. Just as the lifeboats for Paul's vessels are cut adrift in Acts 27.32. So for me, in my journey, all the other means of support seem to be cut adrift. My family can't carry me through grief. Although they help, my courage wasn't strong enough, my faith is too fragile, my hope is too diminished. There have been no alternatives. The only way that I've been able to get through this storm is by believing that God would help me and see me through it, that he has a purpose for my life, and that that purpose is refined, not thwarted by my pain and my sorrow. In the midst of the rising storm, God promised Paul that he wouldn't lose him, that Paul would be kept safe because God had a purpose for him. Let me read it to you. Acts 27 verses 23 to 26. Paul says, For last night there stood by me an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before the emperor. And indeed, God has granted safety to all those who are sailing with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we will have to run aground on some island. Hmm. So let me tell you a story about an island upon which I ran a crown, literally. In May 2014, I went sailing with friends um, in the Western Isles of Scotland. And we stopped at the Isle of Mull and found an anchorage. And my friend and I, he's also a minister, decided to go off the boat and uh, have a conversation, a walk and pray together. So we went up onto one of the small hills near the uh, anchorage point that we were in and we started to chat and um, in the middle of the conversation I slipped and my foot went down in between two rocks and I broke my leg in uh, several different places. We had a doctor that was on board and he came up and helped us and we got me down back onto the boat and then we had to dope me up with painkillers to get me to Oban where I was airlifted off the uh, boat and taken to hospital. But in the middle of all of that, as I as I was going through the pain of it, and it was really sore, I felt God saying something to me. This was in May 2014. I felt him saying that I was about to enter the darkest season of my life, but that he would walk through it with me. That I wasn't to lose sight of God through that season because he had said he wouldn't go. I had no idea what was going to happen in my life in the next couple of years. But looking back, I realised that that was a profoundly important part of this journey. I had four suicides, lots of sudden deaths, all happening one after another in my family. And it was incredibly unexpected, incredibly unpredictable and incredibly dark. And there were certainly times that I felt as if God had left me. But looking back, that word given to me in May 2014 was a word that would anchor me in the midst of the storm, a bit like Paul's promise from God that he wouldn't die in the storm. God promised me the same thing. Grief has forced me on a journey with my family that we would never have chosen. I don't think we would still. I don't think I fully understood what God said to me back in 2014. At times I have forgotten that he was there. Sometimes I've yelled at him in anger and he has been silent. Sometimes I've turned my back to him in my pain and he has waited patiently. Despite my failures, despite my lack of faith, despite my confusion, 
God's word to me has sustained me in the storm. It has held me and it has helped me and it has held my family too. Just as Paul knew God would keep the other passengers on the ship safe as long as they stayed on board. I've known God would see my family through this. We haven't had a plan B. If God didn't deliver on his promises to me back in May 2014, I wouldn't make it. It's that simple. And he promised that he would stay with me, and he has. The second bit of the shipwreck analogy, the shipwreck metaphor that really helps me, is the ways in which the wind is described. It grows in intensity, it hits the boat, it's against the vessel in verse 4 of chapter 27. Their journey is slowed because of it in verse 7. Sailing becomes difficult in verse 8, then dangerous in verse 9. A moderate wind in verse 13 ends up being one that hits them full force as this famous or infamous northeaster in verse 14. And as a result of the rising storm, they can't sail. They're at the mercy of the storm. And Luke tells us that they had to give way and let the wind drive them in verse 15. That's exactly how I have felt sometimes. My grief with my journey with grief has felt like I have been being driven by something beyond my control. Thinking that I can cope, I find myself in the midst of a violent storm that rushes down on me. And I wonder if grief always feels like a violent northeaster. Or is it only violent, unexpected and tragic death that feels like that? I suspect it's most grief at one point or another. I have fought them at times, I've resisted them, but at one point or another I have had to give way to the sheer force of them and let the storm batter me and allow myself to be driven by the wind. I don't like giving way, I don't use that phrase very often and I don't mean that I've given up, but giving way to God, giving way to God's work in me through sorrow and grief is not giving up. It's believing that God is still there even when you can't hear him. Under the waves, behind the raging sea, beyond the squall, in the midst of the storm, God remains present. Not because of my faith, but because of his faithfulness. But these storms batter us. I think I've come to understand that when tragedy and sorrow crashes in on me, I have to let the storm rage itself out. And trust that God isn't only in it with me but also that he will be with me after it and that he'll help me pick up the pieces and then there's a third image from the storm picture that helps me and it's the sense of abandonment i will never forget acts chapter 27 verse 20 listen to the words when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest raged. All hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Oh, that describes my journey with grief. When my dad died in 2002, I plunged into a dark abyss and I thought I would never get out of it. The light seemed so far away. Hope seemed to linger like a memory more than a promise. And his death brought to life in me memories of my childhood that only my wife knows. Night after night, crying, shaking. Day after day, losing my concentration, forgetting how to smile. In those days after my dad's death, my days were lived in the dark and my nights were darker. And God? Well, God felt distant, remote, 
detached. I've read my Bible throughout my Christian life and I did then. And I've maintained a daily discipline of prayer all of my Christian life. But in the months after my dad's death, my reading was laboured and lifeless and my prayers were angry and joyless. I felt as if I was being consumed with more questions than I could ever answer and gripped with frustration and sorrow. I always dreamt that I would give my dad communion and I never did. How could God let me down like that, I thought. Where was he? If I'd misunderstood his promise about my dad, what other promises had I misunderstood? It was only in the last couple of years, after hearing a sermon from a colleague in ministry, that I realised that during that time I passed out of questioning God and into indicting him. Questioning him is acceptable. Indicting him gets us nowhere. I trust and pray that I'll never face that kind of indicting attitude again. And I trust and pray that if you are in that place, that you will allow your anger to tumble out of God because he will wait for you to stop, but then you will let him comfort you and bring you strength. Let me remind you that even in the midst of the storm that you're facing, when all hope of being rescued feels like it's lost and when you've forgotten that the sun shines and you don't think anymore that you'll ever see a star again, God is still there. In the midst of the darkness, in the midst of the grief, even though you don't see him and feel him, he's there. I didn't sense him, I didn't see him. There are many times in my grief journeys that I haven't felt him. Daybreak came for Paul in Acts 27:33, and it came for me. After months and months of being angry with God when my dad died, with the word why being the singularly most used part of my vocabulary, One day I sat down to write in my journal and I wrote this simple sentence. One day God will answer all the questions that I have and on the day that he answers the questions, the questions themselves will no longer matter. I I stared at that sentence for weeks. Here's my answer. Straightforward, simple and hard. The creator would one day explain himself to me, but until then... I have to decide whether I will be humble enough to accept that I was created and he was creator. That may not have been the answer that I wanted, but it was the answer that I needed. And with it came the realisation that now sits at the centre of my relationship with God and it is liberating. I don't have to understand him, to trust him. Maybe the whole of Good Grief, maybe all of this series of podcasts maybe the book, maybe my story, all points to this. That you don't have to understand God to trust him. In so many ways, grief has moved me from defiance to dependence. It's moved me from triumphalism to trust. The world around me doesn't dictate the world within me. I have come to understand That sometimes my pain is the only thing that I can give God and that it is enough. The storms have helped me to understand that. The last part of the storm analogy for me that has been so very helpful is that following God means that I am led into new territory with him through suffering and pain. Peter Levine and Anne Frederick describe how trauma and loss affect us as entering a strange new land. 
when Paul has his meal with his fellow travellers in Acts 27, 35 to 36, it looks very like the last meal that Jesus had with his disciples. The words and the descriptions and the pathos of it are so beautiful. And the morning after, they arrive in a territory that is completely unfamiliar to them. They emerge onto dry land, clutching relics of their voyage, tokens of their safety and their storm endurance, but they're alive. And I think that the new territory that I've entered is that in both God's presence and God's absence, I learn who he is and I emerge into a new terrain. His absence is, as I've said in the last podcast, simply proof of his presence once enjoyed. Once I began to realise that, I began to see that even absence is proof of God's presence. Because you don't miss what you never enjoyed. Death, pain, sorrow, grief, loss, sadness, despair. These are all unwelcome winds. Like gusts of terror. They've changed me and they've changed the way I view the world. I will never be the same again. My old life is gone. As a pastor, as a preacher, as a person, my perspective has changed. I see the world so differently now to how I saw it before. Before what? Before sorrow changed my vision? Before loss? Before sadness? Before all the goodbyes. It's important though that you hear me, even in my tears, say something that is really, really significant. I have landed on the beach. God did not let me drown. Through it all. Despite me rather than because of me. God has brought me safely to land. The second image is the image of the wilderness. When Nina Bowden lost her husband in 2001 in a train accident, she was devastated and she wrote an article for the Daily Telegraph, the United Kingdom newspaper in 2005, in which she described her loss as being alone in a desert. A couple of episodes ago, we looked at deserts and uh, I picked up the Valley of Baca from Psalm 84, verse 6, which is both a desert and a valley. A place of tears, a place of barrenness. Hebrew has two words for um, desert, mitvar and arava. Mitvar is almost more of a um, metaphorical word. It's also physical, but it has lots of layers of meaning. Arava means more the physical terrain of a desert although they both point to desert places and there are obvious pictures from the desert that we can explore to deserts are a place of wilderness and isolation they're a place of feeling lonely and cut off they're arid they're dry not much seems to flourish there living is hard friendship is far away you feel very alone all of those are true And all of those are why I think the image of the desert speaks so powerfully to us. But biblically, the desert is not only all of those things, it's also a place of encounter. You see that repeatedly in the Bible. No less 
than in the Psalms. Let me read just a couple of verses to you from Psalm 78, for example. He split rocks open in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams come out of the rock and caused water to flow down like rivers. That's verses 15 and 16. And then verses 19 and 20. They spoke against God, saying, Can God spread a table in the wilderness? Even though he struck the rock so that the water gushed out and torrents overflowed, can he also give bread or provide meat for his people? And the answer is yes, he can. In the biblical narrative, the wilderness is a place of encounter with God, not just a place of barrenness, not just a place of aridity and dryness. It's a place where God comes and meets us and changes us. It's a place, I think, for the prophets, for example, where hope is rediscovered. The desert becomes a place of encounter, renewal, restoration and a rediscovery of purpose. Sometimes it's the place where the people of God face the consequences of their actions. But it is a place where we can meet with God. The desert may well be a picture of barrenness, but it's also a place of provision. It's a space where God meets his people and grows them in faith through profound growth and character that they may not have chosen. As I reflect on deserts in the scriptures, I am reminded that God meets me in my deserts. Death and despair have led me into a wilderness, but God could meet me in it. If that's true, then how can you enter the desert with a sense of possibility, not just a sense of dread? Is it possible, I think it is, to leave a desert stronger than you entered it? Closer to God, not further away? More hopeful, not just more hurt? There's no story that is clearer about that for me in the biblical narrative than the story of Abraham, Isaac, Hagar, Sarah and Ishmael. It's a powerful, powerful reminder of God's grace meeting this family in the midst of the desert. You probably know the story, but Abraham and Sarah have been promised a child. They get impatient and as a, a, a part of the customs of the day, I guess, Abraham and his concubine Hagar um, have a child and that child is called Ishmael. But Sarah becomes jealous and the child is sent away. A couple of passages I want to read to you about it and then reflect with you on for a moment. Genesis 16 Hagar has run away and it says here the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness the spring on the way to Shur and he said Hagar where have you come from and where are you going and she said I am running away from my mistress the angel of the Lord said return to your mistress and submit to her the angel of the Lord also said to her I will so greatly multiply your offspring that they cannot be counted for multitude and the angel of the Lord said to her now you have conceived and shall bear a son you shall call him Ishmael, for the Lord has given heed to your affliction. So she named the Lord who spoke to her, You are El Ruai, for she said, Have I really seen God and remained alive after seeing him? Therefore the well was called Beer Laha Ruai, and it lies between Kadesh and Veret. The name El Ruai means the God who sees. Later, Sarah gives birth to Isaac and the resentment of Hagar and Ishmael grows and she tells Abraham to send Hagar away and Ishmael and Abraham does it. 
But here is what we read in verse 20, in chapter 21, verses 14 to 21 of Genesis. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child, and sent her away and she departed and wandered about in the wilderness. When the water in the skin was gone, she cast the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bowshot, for she said, Do not let me look on the death of a child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Do not be afraid, for God has heard the voice of the boy from where he is. Come, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand. God was with the boy and he grew up and he lived in the wilderness and became an expert in the bow. God hears the cry of those that are lost in the wilderness. He hears the cry of the broken hearted. I think the wilderness can become, if we allow it to be, a place where we find strength and we dig more deeply. It can be a place where we discover a curated story of God's provision and we allow him to give us deeper insight, deeper strength and deeper personal conviction. I think I still probably visit the wilderness sometimes. I enter the desert from time to time. I try not to. But there are certainly times when I do. There are moments still when I feel utterly alone. I think I feel it most deeply about my parents and my brother. I want them to be here. I'm grateful for my children, for my wife, for my siblings, for our families. I love my nephews and my nieces, but sometimes I feel bereft because my mum and my dad and my big brother are not here. The only way I can describe it is it feels like you're in a desert. Nothing seems to make you smile. Nothing lifts you. You just want to stay in bed or stay on your own. And you can close yourself off from the world. You can be in a room full of people and feel like you're in a desert. You can watch people all around you having fun. Simply being alive and enjoying life and feel as if you will never laugh like that again. And I don't think it's because you're morose. I think it's just because you're living with sorrow. Sadness sometimes surrounds your soul like sand, I think. You feel as if it's going to dry you up. Being broken hearted can feel very lonely. People tell you that they understand, that they know what you're going through, but they don't. They can no more understand my sorrow than I can understand theirs, because in the end I think sorrow is a very solitary affair. We mourn together, we weep together, we comfort one another. Christian community changes it. We weep with those who weep and we re rejoice with those who rejoice. But it's hard. I have witnessed the beautiful power of Christian community picking me up and serving me and helping me and strengthening my family. But my goodness, sometimes grieving can feel very jumbled, very disconcerting, very, very mixed up. Understanding that helps us to enter our grief fully, I think. Helps us to find space to be with God in the desert, to be with God in the storm. The trick is, I think, 
Whilst you and I may enter the desert in our grief, we may mu- we, we must be careful not to let the desert enter us. We have to find a way of making sure that we don't become defined by our grief and sorrow, trapped in it. We have to find a way out of it. We go into it, but we come out of it because God is close to the brokenhearted and near those who are crushed in spirit. According to Psalm 34, verse 18. And the last metaphor that I want to use is also taken from scripture. It's the metaphor of the hurricane. And of course, I'm going to reflect on the picture of God meeting Elijah in the hurricane told in 1 Kings 19. It's a very powerful story. And I want to try and read to you something of a hurricane in my life. And this is taken directly from good grief because if I don't read it I won't be able to say it I returned bereft to my home in Bournemouth after my dad died it was September 2002 and I was a month shy of my 32nd birthday the funeral had taken place and we had done as much as we could to sort things out my wife and I talked about the fact that we needed to get home and try to get some kind of routine We'd four small children, two boys and two girls. Our eldest boy was eight and our youngest was six. Our eldest girl was five and our youngest was three. And the children needed to get back to normality. So late one evening, we packed the car in Belfast and began to say our goodbyes. I was full of dread. I was so torn. How could I leave my mum? How could I not go home with my wife and family? How could I leave home to go home? Home was with my parents, but home was also with my wife and children. And I knew that we needed to get back. So that's what we did. It was dark when we said our goodbyes. We organised the children in the car. Debbie said her farewells. We knew I would find it tough and didn't want the children to be frightened if I became distressed. I told my mum not to come outside because I knew how emotional the farewell would be. I wrapped my arms around her, told her that I would speak to her when I got off the ferry in Scotland. She cried and I cried. Then she sobbed and I sobbed. United in our sorrow and our confusion, bound together not just by the arms of grief, but by arms of love we wept. I just kept saying to myself, you have to get into the car. But in my heart I kept saying, don't go. Don't loosen your grip. So I got into the car and I settled myself and it took a while, but eventually I was able to drive. All the children were very quiet wondering why daddy was crying so much I wonder if now 17 years on they remember that throughout this ordeal Debbie simply held my hand I could feel myself closing in it was a windy night as I sat in the car and I heard the whistles of the air outside it felt like the wind was crying with me 
and we drove to the ferry terminal in Belfast and my tears had subsided but now it was raining outside and the weather was getting worse and we were worried that the crossing might be cancelled and I couldn't face that again so we drove onto the boat and as I drove on to the ramp I was overcome with a wave of pain like I have never experienced in my life I wasn't only leaving my mum and my sister and my brothers I was leaving Ireland again a place that had such deep roots in me I was leaving the devastation of pain and loss and as the whip, the, the wind whipped up and the rain poured down I wondered if I'd ever see my mum again it was a completely irrational thought but it was there my dad had dropped dead so what guarantee had it had I that my mum wouldn't a tsunami of pain and loss arose in my soul I stopped the car and the ramp opened the door and fell under the deck sobbing dozens of cars were behind me in the line but I just couldn't do anything about it I crawled across the ramp of the boat to the railing and lay on the ground and sobbed I can still feel the damp dirty metal in my chest I can smell the diesel fumes being pumped out of the cars and the engines of the boats. I can feel the rain hitting my face and the wind whirling around me like a hurricane. I looked back at the car and I saw Debbie standing by the passenger door on the phone. It later turned out that she was talking to one of my friends and the leader of the church in Bournemouth was just asking him to pray. And all the cars just waited. This was my hurricane. Eventually, I was able to get back into the car and eventually onto the car, onto the boat and we got home. But it was all these questions of why that had caused the hurricane in me. Where was God? Why hadn't he helped? Why hadn't he answered? Why hadn't he warned me? Why hadn't he protected my dad? Why didn't I have time to say goodbye to him? And it's all those whys that created the hurricane. And it reminds me of the story of Elijah who had a powerful, victorious encounter with God in 1 Kings 17, in which he defeated the prophets of Baal. But then in 1 Kings 19, he runs and hides in a cave. And he feels as if he wants to die. He wants to give up. He can't go on. And there's much that I could say about that passage, his self-pity, his sense of isolation, his fear, his uncertainty, perhaps his mental illness, his mental ill health. All of those things are in the passage, I think. But in the end, the thing that's most important, the thing that sticks with me, is that God is close enough that Elijah can hear him whispering. And that's what got me through. God doesn't need to shout to get my attention. He's close enough for me to hear him whispering. And his whisper is louder than the hurricane of grief. It's louder than the storm. It's closer than the desert. Three metaphors that help us, I think, with the jumble journey. The storm, the desert, and the hurricane. And whether you're facing unpredictability, isolation, or paralysing fear, in grief, God is present. And we can pass from one of those metaphors into another and back in the same day. But God remains the same. And you don't have to pretend. 
I don't have to pretend. I don't have to fit somebody else's expectations. I just have to be me. And God will wait for us. I hope this episode has helped you. But God will wait for you. Maybe you don't even know him yet. He's waiting for you. He knows your heartbreak. He knows how devastated you feel. He knows how frightened you are. And you don't have to pretend to be something else. Next time we will explore another picture. The metaphor of our grief as seasonal. But for now, I pray that God will comfort you, strengthen you. And that you will know that you don't have to be anything other than yourself. As you face grief and loss. Thanks for listening.